Father, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the blood of Jesus. I thank you for the opportunity this morning of coming together as the body of Christ to celebrate, to fellowship, to worship, all to glorify you. I ask, Father God, that you would speak to us and that you would transform us by your word. Help us, Father God, to be more like your son. And help us, Father God, as we negotiate all of the hard things that life has presented to us. I thank you that you give us strength even when there's none left in us. I ask, Father, these words would be of you, not of me. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like for you to turn with me this morning to 1 Peter. We're going to continue to look at this, this fabulous book. It, just, it, it is amazing how pertinent it is for our time we're going to continue to look at how Peter presents things for us as believers so that we can live holy while surrounded by hostility. And every day it just seems like there's, there's something new that, that points to this difficulties and uh, hostilities that we're surrounded with. As Peter teaches us, he, he continues in our passage today by reminding believers of another reason for the ability to cope with life's difficulties. And he also reminds us of the greatest reason for obedience in this life. And I know we don't like to hear that word obedience, but it's, it's a part of who we are. So he's going, to, he's going to give us some more information. He's going to help us with dealing with life, and he's also going to help us deal with that idea of obedience. Let's read today's passage, beginning in verse 17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In verse 17, addresses, or address, comes from a word in the Greek that literally means to call upon. We sometimes refer to that as prayer. Sometimes those prayers are simple. I know in my life a few times I've done the, I had no other words in the situations, so the only prayer I get out is, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. We call upon God. And when believers call upon God as Father, they are voicing the intimate relationship that they have with God. This is something that is unique to believers. It's also something that Jesus demonstrated by repeatedly referring to God as Father. So Jesus repeatedly referred to God as Father, which just really irritated the Jews because that was a blasphemy. Jesus also instructed us to, to use this intimate way 
of referring to the Father in our prayer. If you remember in Matthew 6, 9, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Pray then this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. So there's that intimacy. Paul also taught this form of intimacy in his, in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's a very intimate part of who we are as believers. And this intimate relationship with God drives us as believers to desire holiness. Our conduct is to be holy because we understand God the Father as an impartial judge as well. We want to be like Him, so we want to be holy. We also understand that He's a judge, so we want to be holy. This idea of judging sometimes is difficult. But the reality is, Scripture teaches that everything you or I or anyone who has ever existed has done is being recorded by God. Anything you've done, God has kept track of. He keeps track of everything. And when the judgment comes, God will perfectly judge the works of all people. Jesus said this. This is in Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Repay every man according to his deeds. Repay. That repay part is judge. He will judge. Believers and unbelievers' work will be judged. Our eternal acceptance into God's kingdom is based solely on our faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. So when we talk about him judging our works, we're not talking about salvation. Eternal Salvation is only available by grace through faith. That's established. Because because believers, or unbelievers, because unbelievers have rejected Christ and His sacrificial death, their judgment is eternal life in hell. So there's that kind of judgment. But the New Testament clearly teaches that all works will be judged the works of the believer and the unbeliever. We're not saved by our works. So when we talk about this kind of judgment, we're not talking about our salvation. Our good deeds corroborate our faith. That's what this means. There is no work that we could do. There's no work that would be great enough for us to to be judged not guilty. There's nothing we could do that would remove the stain of our guilt except for the work of Christ. Each of us is guilty. However, the evidence of our salvation is found in our good works, how we live. Believers understand and love who who God is, that God is loving and gracious and merciful, and that Jesus died in our place out of His grace and love and mercy We also understand that God is perfect in His holiness. And in that absolute holiness, He also has to judge. In His holiness, He disciplines and He judges. But it's perfect. It's not not something we can fully understand. Because if we judge, it's usually not good. Because we're not perfect. What this means, I believe that... 
We need to grasp the concept that as believers, we are to give evidence in our lives. Believers should have something that others see and and something that portrays the truth, the evidence of what Jesus has done in our lives. Paul wrote of this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 11. He said, you are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk in a manner worthy. In 1 Peter 17, that word fear it means a reverent and submissive recognition. And, and, the, and the fear there in the context of the passage we're in is, is the desire of believers to have their works judged good. Have your works judged as acceptable by, by God so that God receives glory. It's not so that you can go around and go, God said I did good. It's so that you can go, God did good. Look what he's done in me. It's for his glory. As Peter continues in our passage in verse 18 and 19, he builds upon the faith of the believer and the knowledge the believer has of redemption and specifically the value of redemption. Redeemed. That word used to be used in church much more than it is today, and I think that's... That's bad. I I think we need to use it more often. But we need to understand it. In this passage, redeemed is the key word. That's the key word. And redeemed comes from a term that, that literally means to purchase, release, by paying a ransom. In ancient cultures, this was the term that was used for, for paying money to, to buy back prisoners of war or to purchase the freedom of a slave. Both of those practices were very common in, in, that, in that culture. At that time in history, if, if an army came through and, and conquered, they took prisoners. That was the practice in, in warfare. So ransom or, or redeemed is, is the ransom that you would pay to that army to buy back your family members that were taken captive. It was also used in the trade of slaves. Slaves, You want a slave, you buy a slave. Okay, Then you decide, you know, that slave is really somebody I really appreciate. I am going to purchase his freedom, his or her freedom. So, so that redeemed has this idea of a transfer of something of value to receive someone out of, out of bondage. This image is, is very connected to the Old Testament especially to the narratives about the Passover. Remember the Passover back in Exodus. Uh, A lamb with no blemish had to be brought into the family. It became part of the family. And it was to be slain, and some of the blood was to be placed on the the doorposts and the lintel of the door, and the lamb was then to be roasted. And and they, they laid out all these specific ways that this had to take place. And then I want you to to think very clearly of the rest of the description of, of that process of Passover in Exodus 12, beginning of verse 11. It says, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, 
your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In that context, when when God established the Passover, the price of freedom for the Israelite family was the blood of that lamb. You see that? This became the symbol of substitutionary redemption. This followed all the way through the history of Israel. And then you, you see it in the New Testament and it's all connected. Paul wrote of it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. There's a connection. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Redemption becomes an essential characteristic then of salvation and specifically refers to the cost, the price paid to be saved from sin and death. So redemption is all about the cost, the price, the value. The only payment that is great enough, the only payment great enough is the sacrificial death of the perfect lamb. Jesus Christ. That's that's exciting. He willingly sacrificed for us. We are reminded in this passage that believers are redeemed from their feudal way of life. What does that mean, feudal way of life? This is the life of sin, a life separated from God. The condition of all men and women, Paul wrote about this in in Romans 3.23. Most of us have it memorized. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All there means all. But through Christ's sacrifice, believers have been purchased out of that slavery, out of that bondage. That's that value there. A certain value was given so that you would be rescued, redeemed. Paul wrote in Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Then later in the same chapter, he says in verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became Slaves of righteousness. Every unredeemed person is living a futile life. The greatest achievement of unbelievers may appear great and and, and it might look like something, wow, that's really good. But their efforts are absolutely pointless because of their unbelief and their rejection of God. Because the unbeliever rejects God, they do not, they don't partake of that value of redemption provided through Christ, and they remain dead in their sins. 
This idea is made clear by Jesus as well when he asks his disciple a very simple question, Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Very pertinent questions related to redemption. The price, the price of salvation, redemption, is clearly established in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And every time I, I go to that passage, this isn't in my notes, but I have to do it anyway. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So on the one hand, it's speaking of this, this idea of redemption. So the price of our redemption is the blood of Jesus. There isn't anything more valuable than that. There is no greater price that could have been paid. But what's the result of that redemption? Become the righteousness of God. So think carefully of that little phrase, righteousness of God. Who has the righteousness of God? Well, God has the righteousness of God. So you could say the Father has the righteousness of God. The Son has the righteousness of God. The Holy Spirit has the righteousness of God. But what Paul is saying is, so do you as a believer. That's got to start functioning within us and excite us to the understanding that when God purchased us out of slavery to sin, He brought us to a place where He sees us the same as He sees Jesus. He sees you just as righteous as Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at. How did you arrive at that place? Through the blood of Jesus. This concept is huge. This also brings us to another concept that, that we have to, to understand and understand well. We've been purchased. How, how, my son just came up a few weeks ago and I helped him buy a car. It's the first time he's ever bought a car. It was kind of funny to watch. We understand that kind of purchase. Through Christ's sacrifice, through His blood, you, if you're a believer, you have been purchased out of something. We do not understand slavery the same way they did in the first century. That slavery to sin, you were purchased out of that. Paul wrote in Romans 6.6, 6, our, our old self was crucified with Him. Do you ever feel that way? So by being purchased, you have become the righteousness of God in Christ because of that purchase. Now, the next concept is one that we call imputation. That is to assign something to a person in a legal sense. To impute guilt is to assign guilt to a person's legal account. That's important. But the same, the same thing is true because you can impute righteousness or assign righteousness to a person's legal account. So 
we start with, with the guilt side. The guilt of the sinner was imputed to us. It was given to us. We, we, we received that just naturally, right? So, so we're just all sinners. But that sin was imputed to Christ. He took your sin. This means that Jesus is seen just as guilty as you are. Does that shake you any? In God's heavenly court, Jesus took your sins. Your sins were imputed to him. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus ever actually sinned. He was never contaminated by sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So he he never had the sin. It can't mean that Jesus took on sin and became a sinner and was defiled by sin. He couldn't do that. It was impossible for, for Christ to sin. He knew no sin. This must be true because Christ had to be spotless to be the perfect substitute to pay the price. Our sins were imputed to him, which means in the court of law of heaven, Christ was treated like you would be. How guilty are you? Even though he knew no sin. Now, in verse 19, back in 1 Peter, the, <clears throat> the blood of Christ is, is what makes this change. Because on the one hand, our sins were imputed to Christ. But because those sins were imputed to him and he went to the cross and died and shed his blood, his righteousness has been imputed to us. Glory to God. Now, that blood... The blood is not just speaking of the red fluid in his body. <clears throat> it means the entire work of redemption. Blood was very important in that concept of sacrifice. There was nothing supernatural about the blood that flowed in his body. If there was some kind of supernatural power in the blood of Jesus, the soldiers who were most likely splattered with his blood through the process of scourging and crucifixion, they would have been spiritually affected. But the, the scripture is clear. The only way they could be spiritually affected by the death of Jesus is if they believed he was the Savior who died and rose from the dead. That's the only way they could be affected, by his death. They had to believe just like you and I. The blood of Christ means Christ's death is the price paid for our redemption. And this price was established by God. God's the one who established the price. And because all sin is against God, the price paid, the price required was paid to God. Now, this is actually really incredible. Follow with me real closely. This is amazing. We talk about amazing grace. Here's amazing grace. Think with me. God established the law and God established holiness because he is holy, right? First truth. God established that. Cannot be changed. It's eternally true. Next, God established the penalty for breaking his law and opposing his holiness. Also connected with his nature, with his character. 
and absolute. It cannot be changed. God established the penalty for breaking His law and opposing His holiness. Third truth. God established the required fine or payment due to remove the penalty. God established what would work to remove the, the, the sin, right? We didn't do that. God did that. So God established what it would take to get right with God. What's the payment due? Next. God also established how that payment would be made. What would it take to pay that price? Something had to die. Something had to shed blood. The next truth. God provided the payment. He established all those things. And then he said, you know what? I'll pay that for you. The payment was the life of his own son. That's grace. That's love. That's who we serve. That's our God. That's awesome. Peter finishes this section with details of the son. And I think that helps us just to celebrate this whole thing of what Jesus has done. Verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was foreknown. God planned to send Jesus to redeem, to redeem, to redeem Believers before he created the universe. Time, God has no concept of time like we do. He established the law. He established holiness. He, he established all of those things. And he also knew he had, to, he had to give, he had to pay the price. And Jesus was foreknown. This plan was foreknown. The incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus were not God's surprised reaction to the fall of Adam and Eve. This is a a common way people think. Adam and Eve sinned. Oh no, what am I going to do? That would be our response. That was not God's response. God's response was, I am going to provide a way out should that happen. And I kind of think it's going to happen. Okay, I'm going to create the heavens and the earth and all that. And I'm going to put Adam and Eve in the garden and they're going to sin. But I've already got it taken care of. It's a done deal. Another picture of God's grace and his goodness. God predetermined his son to be the savior of all believing humans. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't some kind of emotional response to what Adam and Eve did. God was in control. Jesus appeared. Peter is proclaiming a historical event. Jesus took on human form, lived a perfect human life, died a horrible death, and was buried. Factual things. Peter tells us he appeared 
for the sake of you. You put your name in there. Jesus appeared for the sake of Emily. For Dick. For Swade. Can't remember any of the other names. No. That's why Jesus appeared. This is for us. This was all done for those who would believe. Paul wrote this in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on, on a cross. Why? For you and me and all who would believe. So he comes and he dies. Jesus then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of, the, of, of, of God, at the, at the throne of heaven. God raised Jesus from the dead, powerfully proving that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, perfect payment for the penalty of sin. The resurrection is proof God has accomplished the redemptive work necessary to save men and women who would believe. You are saved. You know you're saved because we know Jesus rose from the dead. He was dead and he rose from the dead. Proof. That you, like Paul wrote, have the righteousness of God. All this work of redemption, all of what we have seen in this passage is for Christ to receive glory. All of this, this idea of redemption, all of Christ coming, taking on human form, dying for us, raising from the dead, all of the story of Christianity is all about glorifying God. It's all about glorifying Him. And this is the glory that Paul wrote. And I love this from Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. For this reason, for this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Son. Thank you that you have paid the price for us through the sacrifice of your only Son. And I thank you that in your goodness and your grace it was perfectly planned, perfectly executed, and is effectual even today. I ask, Father God, that you would would help us, remind us, and encourage us to walk in the righteousness that you've provided through your Son. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Holy Spirit, guide our steps. Guide the, the every, every 
step in our life, every word we speak, everything that we do, help us, help us, Holy Spirit, to be more like our Savior. And Father, I ask that you'd help us to not underestimate the price that was paid. Glorious. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.